Welcome back to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, the Education and Training Specialist out here at the UF IFAS Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. We are officially in our third season of Working in the Weeds. We really appreciate the support and listener submissions we've received, and I'm really excited because the season is all about answering your questions. In today's episode, Dr. Farrell and I are going to be talking with CAPE affiliate faculty member Dr. Dia Lorenz. Dr. Lorenz is an extension scientist in the UF IFAS agronomy department. In her current role, she coordinates the UF IFAS assessment of non-native plants in Florida's natural areas. This is a program that provides the status and risk of invasion for non-native plant species. Today, with her extensive background in invasion science, Dr. Lorenz shares what the UF IFAS assessment is, how it can be used, and how we discuss the risk of non-native plants from research to the market. So, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Lorenz and find out why invasive plants are found in stores. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Working in the Weeds. I'm really happy today to have another guest with us. Today, I have both a friend and a colleague, Dr. Dia Lorenz. Dia and I have been friends, and we've worked together for almost 10 years at this point. We usually get together and we'll talk about invasive plants. Sometimes we argue. Most of the times we agree. But I'm really looking forward to having this conversation today that you all get to listen in on. So let's get started, Dia. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself in this field. Yeah, so I started out at, as a pretty lost soul in undergrad um, at a liberal arts school um, where we sort of de- designed our own major. And we had all these sort of alternative classes, but our science classes were all centered around the whole semester around a topic to teach a bigger concept. So one of the years I was there, they, they did a whole semester on white-tailed deer to teach ecology. And so it was really interesting. They, they went bottom up, top down, um, and we all had to do a research project. So my research project was um, on whether or not deer ate honeysuckle. And this is in the 90s when bush honeysuckle, Linus Macchiai, was really getting a lot of publications out there. And we wanted to see if anything ate it. And so we had a group project and no nothing the, the deer did not eat it. So we had to do a whole um, presentation on negative results. Uh, so that was my first research project um, in, in college. Uh, after I graduated, I did a bunch of odd jobs. I um, managed an embroidery shop. I did field archaeology. Um, and this is when you were still in Ohio, right? Yep, all up in Ohio. So it was around then that I decided it was time to go back to school. And I got into Ohio University uh, as a non-traditional student, and I joined Kim Landsbergen's lab. And her only only requirement was that you did something with ecophysiology. And so I ended up working. The only plant I really knew was the honeysuckle because I grew up with it, and I'd say it in undergrad. Um, so I did a project on ecophys of um, honeysuckle and biomass partitioning, that kind of stuff. Uh, after I finished that degree, I went to Davie, Florida, um, Fort Lauderdale, to work for the uh, USDA's IPRL, uh, Invasive Plant Research Laboratory, and did work on biocontrols. Um, our biocontrol was the only one on Melaleuca that didn't work. It was a little tachinid fly that was a, a tip galler, um, but the climates didn't match. It was too hot for it. Down another, there. another negative results. Yeah, negative <laughs> results. Yeah, hopefully this isn't a pattern, but... but uh, uh, so I, I got uh, exposure to sort of the plant herbivore side of things with plants 
and decided when I finished that contract to go back to grad school. And I got my PhD at Wright State in Dayton. So I just sort of ping pong back and forth between Ohio and Florida um, in education and and working. Um, But yeah, I got a PhD in plant herbivore interactions and uh, the chemical ecology of the of the plants. Um, so I worked with honeysuckle again. So this time it was native and non-native honeysuckles and multiple species. Uh, I interviewed for this job that was uh, with Luke Flory originally and Doria Gordon, uh, Ken Langland. They were on the search committee and basically came in as a, you know, a salaried employee doing risk assessments, which I didn't even know how to do. I sold myself in the interview, like, if you understand the, the characteristics and the way the, the, you know, the plants interact with the environment, you can do risk assessment. And so they hired me, and I had secured that position before I walked in my graduation. So, and, so now you're, you lead the IFAS assessment for non-native plants, and yep. you didn't have a background in risk assessment. No, no. I learned as I went along. <laughs> <laughs> so where was the program when you took in – you came into the role and where is the program now? Yeah. So when I first started, we had a very uh, user-unfriendly website that was – you know, to get our list, we updated it pr- once, maybe twice a year. Uh, it was only 715, 20 species, a scrollable PDF. It was very, very hard to use. And since then, you know, I've sort of drifted into a faculty position as I've grown the program and taken on graduate students. But now we're sitting at about 920 species. So we've added 200 species and revamped the whole website to where it's searchable. Um, You can filter it. Um, There's really nice pictures and lots of links for information. So it's a nice place to start if you're thinking about uh, invasive species or invasive plants. Not only do we give you our recommendation on its invasive either potential or or status, we also give you links so that you can learn more or find out more about the distribution, things like that. So it's become a really nice resource. It's a fantastic tool because if you're wondering – if a plant that you're thinking about buying or thinking about putting into your landscape, is this going to be a good plant for me in the area in Florida that I am? You can go right to the website, and, and we'll have the uh, website in the show notes. So go to the assessment site, and you can see you know, good information, whether it's predicted to be a problem or we know that it's been a problem in the past, and you can really avoid certain things. So it has been very helpful. And I remember back in the old days, trying to figure out is a plant good or not would be just a room full of experts all giving opinion. Well, I've seen it be a problem. Well, I haven't. Well, this assessment tool and what DIA has done has taken all that opinion out of it. And now these are what the data say, and we don't have to rely on opinion. There's actually information and a very valid way and a very valid tool of making these assessments now. Yeah, and so we talk a lot about the fact that invasive plants cause harm or that they're bad. But how do we quantify that? How does your assessment really get behind that and curate some data behind it? Yeah, so the the IFAS assessment has three tools. So we have our predictive tool, which is a weed risk assessment. I'm really working with the community to change that term to an invasive uh, invasive plant risk assessment because uh, I think the terminology gets confusing for people. But um, this is basically the gold standard uh, risk assessment for plants that was developed by the Australians 
early on, and it's been tweaked for different geographic scales or locations. So we just changed it up a little bit to account for our climate, our precipitation, uh, and soil types here. Uh, so that, you know, you just answer the questions. There's uh, 39 questions, and there's each question is scored based on the data that you provide. And then it spits out a score at the end. We've developed these thresholds. And it's questions like, does it make seed? Does yeah. it fragment? Mm -hmm. It's things like that, right? Yeah. So plant habit. Uh, so is it a nitrogen-fixing woody plant? Is it a grass? Is it an aquatic? So those kind of questions are in there. There's also history of invasiveness elsewhere, which is very one of the most predictive questions in the tool. Uh, and then we ask questions, yeah, how does it disperse? persistence in the soil? Does it benefit from mutilation or getting cut back? So if you mow it, is it going to do better? Like those are those are the kind of questions. So the basically over the last hundred years mm -hmm. of doing invasive plant research, we know the criteria that usually travel mm -hmm. with invasive plants. So you just add up those characteristics and you get your prediction. Yeah. So it um, basically, if you think about risk, what is risk? Risk is the um, interaction of, you know, the likelihood that something will happen and that there will be negative impacts. So in this case, the something that can happen would be, is the plant going to get introduced? Is it going to spread? And is it going to establish? And then there are the impacts, which we also answered. That's your history of invasiveness elsewhere. And so that interaction is whether risk can, you know, there is a risk. So if you can have a lot of impacts, but the event isn't going to occur, like for example, the plant can't grow in Florida uh, because it's too hot. Uh, well, then your your risk is low for Florida, but it might be high for somewhere else where the climates would match. So that's that's sort of how these tools work. And so that spits out your your conclusions, which have been tested and tested. And this particular tool is always runs between 92 and 98 percent um, um, accurate for catching our major invaders. So yeah, it's a it's a really nice uh, and easy uh, way to to assess risk. So it just really takes the guesswork out of some of this. Yes, yeah, yeah. There, well, we do have two other tools. <laughs> there is the status assessment, which is more of a diagnosis. So this this one looks at ecological impacts, management difficulty. Um, what's the current distribution and what's the potential to spread? And so the, that that's more, you know, where one predicts the other diagnosis. And then our final tool is a, um, it, it's for the cultivars, varieties, hybrids. And so that's something we use internally at UF to evaluate cultivar releases. So we just want to make sure that that cultivar isn't going to do the same thing as the parent or worse. Yeah. So for example, if there is an invasive plant, makes a lot of seed and is being spread around, but there is a new release from a breeder here at University of Florida that doesn't make seed, all of a sudden, maybe that plant would be okay while the wild type isn't. Is that right. sort of what we're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going to offer alternatives to to those those problematic species. But, you know, we're also taking this check within the university before we release something that might become a problem later. Yeah, that was a, a real issue. That's sort of where the assessment started is we would have one group breeding ornamental plants and another group is trying to manage them, that same plant in wild areas. It's like, wait a minute, we've got to get on the same page as an institution and this has really helped us do that. And again, no opinion. This is what it says. And across all of the extension recommendations now, we have a place to go that we know what to recommend and how to proceed. So that brings me to today's topic. We're excited to start answering some questions we've received from listeners. And a popular question we get asked, especially by gardeners, 
is if that plant is invasive or if it is a problem or a nuisance, why is it available for purchase at garden centers? So there's a a lot that goes into regulating plants, you know, non-native plants. So we have different lists uh, that are regulatory or non-regulatory. And to get those species put on a regulatory list, which would actually make your big box stores not be able to sell it, uh, you, you have to go through a process with either the state or the feds where you do a petition, uh, you pull together information, a lot of the information you can pull from things like the assessments that we do. And then they take that information. We do a presentation about the species and why we think it should be listed. This is for the state. I've never gotten one listed for the feds. But we sit in this room, we discuss it, we bring in experts. Um, we have experts sit on the panel to advise. A lot of folks from IFAS are are on that committee. And then they vote So that's the easiest part, right? Then it has to go to Tallahassee. And once it goes up to Tallahassee, it it gets bogged down in in the listing process. And, you know, this is usually for good reasons. Like we had a big hurricane. I think the year that um, Irma went through, we were waiting to get two plants put on the list. And it kept getting bumped and bumped in the legislative sessions because they were dealing with more important stuff. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, the invasive species would be a, a priority, but I'm also a realist. And if, you know, we're dealing with mass destruction, <laughs> like we understand why things get get bumped down. So that's, you know, sort of why you can see a lot of these things like, like, you know, Ruilia that uh, still fruits. I think it's the Purple Showers cultivar. You can still buy that, and it, and it fruits. It's still, it's still uh, reproductive. You can still buy this at the store. I get the question a lot, you know, why, why isn't Lantana on the list? Why isn't Ruilia on the list? Um, and there are reasons for that. Uh, well, is there a bit of a feeling that, well, the cat's out of the bag, right? Mm-hmm. This stuff is already reproducing in the wild and listing it now isn't going to be necessarily helpful. Is that part of the discussion too? Yeah. So one of the one of the main, main questions in that listing process is you need to make a case. What is putting this plant on the list going to do? And so, you know, I, I got... Japanese honeysuckle listed, and it's everywhere in the southeast. And uh, the argument was, well, we'll stop people from moving it around, introducing new genetic diversity that might make it even more invasive, things like that. So those are the kind of cases you have to make when it's already out. But if we're dealing with something like lantana, you know, we're never going to get people to stop planning that. Uh, so instead, maybe we'll think about that cultivar release process and think about um, encouraging breeders to, to come up with less invasive varieties. Well, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show and just internally in our office is being a very aware consumer, right, is knowing what you're going out to get. And the thing we need to keep in mind is why is that really important in this horticulture uh, trade industry? Well, partly because most homeowners aren't necessarily experts at growing plants. They need something that's going to grow fast, that's going to be hardy, grow in shade, grow in sun, too much water, too little water, too much fertility, too low fertility. They need a robust plant. Well, what I've just described is often an invasive plant, grows anywhere, grows fast, is hardy. So it is very likely that the things that are out there by their very nature of them being robust and being able to make it through that sales process and being able to sit at Lowe's on those concrete blocks for two months before they're purchased, that kind of sets it up to be an invasive plant a lot of times. So knowing what you're buying and buying the right thing and buying the right cultivar 
of that thing is very important. And thankfully, we have the tools now to help with that decision process. Yeah, so sounds like to me, gardeners and homeowners can use the resources available to them to then inform themselves when they are at the store. I mean, I know personally, I'll have my phone out when I'm at the garden center. And before I buy a plant, if it's for inside my house, I'm like, all right, is it good for my cat and I? And then if I'm going to be putting it out in the yard, is it invasive? What kind of care does it need? So in the same sense, you know, y'all can look up these plants with these assessments and these plant lists and see where the plant is in regards to Florida's climate and what kind of impact it could have in the environment. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand what list you're looking at. So there are probably five major lists that we use in Florida. Um, There are many more that sort of offshoot off of those lists that are often curated from the main sources. So the IFAS assessment is the official recommendations of the University of Florida IFAS. Through the, the work that we do in my program, we're trying to steer the consumer in the right direction. We also have the federal noxious weed list, which you you start messing with those plants, uh, you're breaking the law. Same with the state list. We have two state lists. Before we leave the federal list, oh, so what sorry. does the federal list mean? And if it's something is listed on the federal, what does that mean? Yeah, so the, the federal list, basically, it prohibits the movement of a species across state lines. Okay, state to state. State to state, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you can't move any part of it, seeds, flowers, uh, you know, any biomass, unless you have some sort of special permit. So then from there, there are state lists. Mm-hmm. And not all states have a list. So our uh, neighbors above, Georgia, they don't have a, a noxious weed list. I think Louisiana doesn't have a list. Rhode Island doesn't have a list. So not all states will have that level of regulatory uh, listing. But Florida, we actually have a pretty good process for that and pretty active. So if there's a plant listed on the Florida list, what does that mean? You can't move any piece of that plant, flower, seed, stalk, any uh, within the state. Um, okay. So, you know, we might, I, I remember it was uh, Christmas and someone sent me this, uh, you know, someone's selling Brazilian pepper tree wreaths on Etsy. Mm. And so I let her know, like, you're actually breaking the law and you want to pull that down before you get in trouble. Uh, there are monetary fines, I think misdemeanor charges for, for some of this stuff, but usually uh, you get a slap on the wrist and a warning, and I think repeat offenders would be the ones that would get. So, okay, there's a federal list, that's state to state. There are state lists that regulate movement, don't allow movement within the state. And you said there's two lists in Florida? Right. So there's the prohibited aquatic list and the terrestrial, historically terrestrial um, Florida noxious weed list. In the last couple of years, they have merged those. But I I say the five because the aquatic list is still out there. And then, uh, you know, then we have our, you know, I said the IFAS assessment. There's one more list that a lot of people use in Florida, and it's the what uh, formerly known as FLEPSI, Florida Exotic Pest Plant Council, which I should, full disclosure, I'm the chair right now of that group. We have recently had a name change. So uh, we wanted to retire sort of old terms and get rid of the exotic. And so we changed our name to the Florida Invasive Species Council. We were the first council in the United States over 35 years ago. What Jay had mentioned before, where you're sitting in a room and a bunch of people are just throwing names out and they make a list, that's how they used to do it. And now we, we, you know, we're sort of building more and more um, structure to that listing process. And so now I'm actually working with some other folks on um, making a status assessment, much like what we use at the IFAS assessment, to actually 
screen those species and put some science behind those plant lists as well. So there's some authority behind the federal list. There's authority behind the state list. But the IFAS assessment and the FLEPC or FISC list, they really don't have, they're not authoritative. No, only I would say that the IFAS assessment list is, there are some regulations internally at UF about it. So uh, it is written into policy that all UF IFAS faculty, staff, volunteers uh, should not recommend uh, invasive anything deemed invasive or high risk for invasion. If they recommend caution species, they need to communicate that those species need to be managed to prevent escape. And then the green, this is something that makes our list a little different. Um, I've color-coded everything like a stoplight. So it's red light, yellow light, green light. And everything that's listed as green is okay to go. Like it's okay for us to recommend those. So we do offer something that other, the other lists don't, like alternatives. So, you know, under, say we have a species that's been first assessed in 2008 and we assess it every 10 years and it's still not moving. It's been in our, you know, in the landscape for more than 75 years. We're pretty sure that's not going to become invasive. And so, you know, we've, we've outlasted, you know, the lag time and all that. So um, th those are the species that we can recommend. And actually that is pulled over into another list that University of Florida has. So the Florida Friendly Landscaping Group, where they do yard certifications um, and general guidance for homeowners to plant, um, you know, to landscape their yard. They use our list and incorporate, you know, non-natives that we have green light lit and also native species. So green light's easy. We understand what that mm -hmm. means. Red light is pretty clear. You don't mm -hmm. plant those. But what does that caution or, or yellow middle one mean? How does that work? Yeah, so those are the species we don't really know what they're doing yet, um, at least for the status assessment. They've been here. We reevaluate re those every two years. Uh, we want to make sure that we're getting a handle on the invasion if it's happening. Uh, it could just be sort of a disturbance weed and not really moving into our natural areas. We're really concerned about preserving our the integrity of the natural areas. We do assess those every two years just to, to, to make sure – uh, that we're up to date with those conclusions. And what that means for folks in terms of recommendations, if you work for the university or if you're planting those species, is you're going to keep an eye on them because, you know, they might escape your garden. So, for example, we have some Ruelia cultivars that are listed as a uh, caution. They're sterile. They're not going to become a widespread invader, but they sucker. And so that caution is just not only is it you know, an observation that we had. It's also letting the consumer know, if you plant this, you might want to put it in a container or put some barriers in the ground so it doesn't start popping up in your yard. So the, that that would be a really good example of a caution. So it's just raising awareness mm -hmm. so that if you're going to buy this, it's, it's probably okay if you take precaution. Exactly. And so invasive plants have negative impacts to the environment and they cost a lot of money to manage and consumers should be more aware of what they're purchasing at the stores when they are there. But are there examples of any of these problematic plants being beneficial? Are there sort of, is there research out there looking at ways to kind of turn them into like biofuel or something? Yeah, so, um, you know, we all know gas is starting to uh, starting to creep up. Uh, you know, anytime it goes over a certain amount, uh, I start getting requests to do assessments for some of these biofuel species. 
There are a few that, you know, I'm thinking of the Brassica. I can't remember the common name. They're using it to make jet fuel. Yeah, Brassica uh, carinata. Carinata, yeah. And that's a plant related to lettuce or broccoli? Kind of, yeah, more like the mustard. 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 Yeah, the mustards. Okay. Uh, so they're making jet fuel out of that. And as far as I I recollect, it's it's not really setting off any major alarms in terms of risk assessment. But there are some that, uh, you know, Jay was mentioning the characteristics of what you want to put in your yard. You want something that is going to grow in maybe not the best, you know, land, and you don't have to do a lot to it, and it's going to grow fast. And this is a lot of the same characteristics that you find in biofuel or biomass species. And so, um, so a lot of them are problems. There are, you know, some oilseed trees that have a high invasion risk. There are, you know, bamboos, giant running, they're planting giant running bamboo all over the southeast in the temperate zones as a biomass species. And, you know, hundreds of acres in the Carolinas. And uh, I find that very concerning because, you know, if you look around Georgia and parts of the panhandle, we have a related species that's, in, you know, invading uh, the understories of some of these these forests. So, yeah, I think you have to be very careful. Uh, what we do in Florida this is another place where the Florida Department of Ag comes in very handy, and they they're keeping an eye on this stuff. They have a permitting process for biomass species. So anything uh, that you want to plant over two acres has to get a permit. Uh, this is for non-natives, and to do that permit. They come to me and I do the risk assessment for them. And depending on how that risk assessment comes out, they can either reject the the permit or they can let them put the plan in and they'll put in, you know, stipulations for best management practices, surety bonds, things like that. And then the the state monitors those crops to make sure that they're not escaping. Um, so... Or they can just say no, or they can just exempt it. So there's like four four outcomes. So we are pretty active with that. And uh, recently I was approached about, you know, princess tree, polonia. Um, some of the other species that have come across are, besides the bamboos, uh, would be um, uh, the pongam oil tree, uh, eucalyptus species. So these are all things that they want to either, you know, get the oil out of the the crop or grind them up and pellet, make them into pellets to burn. So those are the kinds of um, biofuels that I've encountered. And there's a permitting process for these sort of quote unquote solutions or potential solutions um, for plants because we know through history that we have tried to do that before, right? There are some plants that we thought were going to help um, and now we are managing them or thankfully working towards managing them, right? Absolutely. You know, Melaleuca was one of those. It was going to be soil stabilization and it was going to have all of these benefits for windbreaks. And boy, it just really turned into a problem. And, you know, this search for green energy is so important and we've got to continue to do that. It's in everybody's best interest to find new energy sources that are renewable, but we really need to make sure we're not creating a problem while we're trying to solve a problem. And I'm really glad that Department of Agriculture here in Florida is very proactive in this. And they go, hey, before you do this, we've got to have some bonds. We've got to have, we got to know what's going on. So it's not the wild west here. Unfortunately, there is a scientific process that has, you have to go through, you have to be vetted. So we, we've talked a lot about some of these potential invaders that are kind of scary that we are worried about. But is how much work has been done on biomass plants that may actually cooperate 
and be better for the environment? Yeah, so um, I worked with some colleagues. Uh, actually, we were from all over. So this was sort of a national scale project where we did risk assessments on, you know, all of the species that have been mentioned for for biomass, for biofuel specifically, uh, pr production. And what we did was did the risk assessments for those species and uh, basically compiled a, a list, a white list. So the paper is, you know, a white list approach. So instead of telling people what they shouldn't be planning, we were offering uh, alternatives. And I believe we came up with 24, 25 non-natives and uh, about the same for, for native possibilities for, for biomass production. So as we wrap up today's episode, how can those working in the weeds or working with plants use the IFAS assessment? Yeah, so uh, a lot of times, you know, folks can use our recommendations to prioritize their management plans. Uh, you can use it as a starting place for research. So say you've got a grad student starting, you might want to go into the assessment and find a, one of our plants that's a caution and do some more research to kind of figure out, you know, what is this thing either potentially or actually doing. So, so there's a research element there, but really going back to the management, I think this is really important. You know, I've been approached multiple times to help with EDRR list, which is early detection, rapid response to try to catch these species and eradicate them before they become a problem. And so I've, I've helped with some of the assessments for that. Well, and I would also say if you're a land manager and you're starting to see a new plant that uh, you haven't seen in the past, contact us because we need to check, is it on the assessment? Do we need to really be following this? Does this need to be something we need to elevate to more uh, statewide uh, conversations? So reach out to us. Be our eyes and ears out in the state. Yeah, and one of the the greatest things about the assessment is, you know, I have built a very strong community with the with the land managers out there, and they provide the data for a lot of the data for our status assessments. So I we have over 500 species that have been uh, assessed with the with that particular tool, and I can't go to you know, all the points, all the natural areas where this, this species is. So they fill out questionnaires and give me the information that I need to be able to um, to complete those those assessments. So they're, they're great. Uh, and I, I value that information daily. Yeah. Shout uh, out to everyone listening if you've contributed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we love you. <laughs> and so as a plant enthusiast myself, for homeowners and gardeners, how can they use the IFAS assessment or the resources or what's available at UF for them? Yeah. So, you know, the IFAS assessment in and of itself is very useful. You can go into our database and filter it for your needs. So say you are interested in planting a, a vine in, in your, you want, you want something that's going to be really pretty and go up a trellis, but you don't want to have something that's going to also take over your neighbor's yard. You can just go to the assessment website and sort by um, plant type, plant habit. So uh, you can sort by zone, uh, north, central, and south zones, and sort of curate your own list that you can use to suit your needs. The mass, master gardeners do this all the time for their their you know their programming because you know we'll take inf we'll make the information give it to the master gardeners, and then they will do their programming. So it sort of trickles. It's a trickle-down kind of approach there as well. 
And Florida Friendly Landscaping Program is also pretty awesome. Um, so they use our list. And to get certified, your yard certified, to get the highest status, no prohibited plants, no plants in the IFAS assessment that are either high risk or invasive. So we've actually, I have, you know, stats, it's like, you know, 200, 200 some odd yards that were certified in the last couple of years. Well, that means that those folks have removed all of the, those problematic plants. So, so you see this sort of trickle down. It's pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Master Gardeners and Florida Friendly. So for Florida Friendly Landscaping, their website's great. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. There's also a new product out at the IFAS bookstore that we've really appreciated out here at the center too. It's called Plant This, Not That. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So if you are getting into gardening, you're not sure what you want to plant in your yard, this booklet can kind of help make some informed decisions in terms of invasive versus native. Yeah, we don't want people to just hear don't, don't, not, not, mm-hmm. don't, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of opportunities and educational materials out there. So instead of this, do this. And, and your landscape is going to be fantastic. It's going to be easier to manage. And it's going to just be a lot better for you and the environment. Well, Dia, thank you for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. But as we finish up, we usually ask if there is a takeaway, if there is a single thing that you want everybody to remember, what would that one thing from this episode be? I will say in terms of take home, the the biggest, I think, the most important thing for the listeners to, to really let it sink in is that you can really make a difference. Like one person can make a difference uh, just by making smart choices, ma- making the right choice. And I think what we're doing here is really great about sort of that navigation. We're telling people where to go. So, you know, if you're aware and you're not just taking a, a clipping or from your neighbor, you're not, oh, that water hyacinth is beautiful. It's going to look great in my koi pond or whatever. People will do that. They will stop at the side of the road and pick stuff up. So if they understand that th- that's illegal or, you know, this plant, this running bamboo is going to run into your neighbor's yard and potentially smash their, you know, their foundation, you might have a liability there. So, you know, we're, we're giving them the information so that, you know, they're making those right decisions. Thanks for listening to Working in the Weeds. Check out our show notes for more information about the topics discussed in this episode. If you have any questions or ideas for the podcast, email us at cape at ifis.ufl.edu. That's C-A-I-P at ifis.ufl.edu. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Stay tuned for more episodes as we continue to turn science into solutions.